Fitz Wilroth, known as Code Rabbi, is a rabbinic scholar and software developer who is currently engineering practice manager at Grovo. A prolific conference speaker, he is currently embarking upon his Wisdom as a Service World Tour, in which he will speak at more than 35 user groups this year alone, giving his talk, Talmudic Maxims to Maximize Your Growth as a Developer. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any more to share about yourself? Most people know me as Code Rabbi. The, uh, prior to being a software engineer, I was a full-time Talmudic scholar, uh, pursuing scholarship as a vocation uh, for over a decade. And uh, I've always been very active in the software development community, primarily the PHP community. And somewhere along the line this year, uh, in a proverbial game of, uh, of chicken uh, with the global community, I did uh, agree to embark on the Wisdom as a Service World Tour. And uh, so far, we're holding. I think we're going to make our number. Uh, we're holding somewhere in the early in the in the early thirties. Yeah, that's 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 really what about these days. Though I am absolutely thoroughly enjoying my role as engineering practice manager at Grobo as well. Your, your talk extracts some practical, actionable advice from Talmudic maxims about how we can grow as software developers. One maxim, for example, says, "I learned much from my teachers, but I learned even more from my colleagues and from my students. I learned most of all." So this speaks to the importance of learning by teaching. How can we go about doing that? There are numerous opportunities to learn by teach, both in the workplace and within the community. It's just recognizing them as such. Mentoring, uh, whether it be formally in the workplace or informally in the workplace, is, is teaching. And if you take that seriously and you embrace the opportunity through the preparation as well as through the interaction with the apprentice, you're going to gain as much as they do. The act of teaching, for it to work, you really have to put yourself in the student's perspective. And that kind of opens up your mind to, to new ideas and new perspectives. And so you, that's in addition to the preparation, the activity of the teaching as well is, is very empowering uh, for the teacher. Pairing in the workplace is a form of teaching. I find that even in the, as the senior and the junior-senior pair, uh, I gain, I grow. In the PHP community, we have phpmentoring.org, an organization which actually pairs up apprentices uh, and, uh, and willing mentors. Uh, there are organizations for women in tech, for teaching children, uh, local dev boot camp initiatives, etc. cetera. Uh, conference speaking or user group speaking. Again, same thing. Uh, the preparation, you end up uh, learning far, far more than you end up imparting to the audience. I think you're really the winner there. Uh, blogging. Blogging is a form of teaching. Uh, the same thing, codifying your knowledge and refining it into a, a blog post. That process of refinement typically tends to enhance your understanding. Uh, Stack Overflow, IRC, these are also ways to, to teach. And again, I find when I answer a Stack Overflow question, uh, th those that I, that I choose to participate in are those that kind of have caught my attention, not necessarily the low-hanging fruit. So the process of research, even if I don't ever end up uh, being the guy to answer the question, it, it helps me. It helps the teacher. So you're a proponent of pair programming. What are some of the benefits you've seen from pair programming? The organization, the, the benefits, uh, knowledge transfer, you know, it's, it can be used as a way to um, easily onboard new developers, to allow junior developers to more easily leverage uh, the, the experience of senior developers. 
and just that everyone should know a little bit about every every part of the code base. Uh, that's that's typically facilitated by by pairing. Sometimes between teams uh, will pair to to um, affect that knowledge transfer and kind of raise the bus factor a little bit. I think we tend to be more focused when we code in pairs. Uh, you've got uh, the other person's attention, and so that shared attention it tends to reinforce each other's focus. You're you're conversational. So um, you're engaging different parts of the brain as well, and that impacts both the focus and I think the quality of your thinking. Also, in terms of focus, uh, when you have distraction, uh, one person can kind of defend the pair, and uh, the science behind it uh, seems to indicate that the pair is back in focus more quickly after an interruption than it would than a single uh, would be because one person has maintained context so they can bring the other person into context more quickly than that person would work through and reachieve context themselves. Uh, and then there's wisdom transfer, uh, learning from your pair. Uh, it's, it's difficult to pair at, at any level and not come back with something uh, useful that you can integrate into your practice even when, then when you're not pairing. One thing I know I can be guilty of sometimes is not planning my coding days. Uh, but for you, this is essential and do it daily. Why is this? My days tend to follow their beginning. And if I'm productive in the first few hours of my day, that sets the tone and I'll be productive all day. If I am not well planned and I find myself uh, context switching or confusing activity with productivity early in the day, that seems to be a trend all day. So just as you would uh, plan an implementation, I, I plan my day. I try to, the night before, uh, spend some time uh, clearing my inbox, uh, you know, kind of setting the table, clearing my inbox, clear my browser tabs so there's no obvious distractions. And then at least planning, this will be the first coding that I do tomorrow. And even if in my role now, I do end up in, in, in meetings and, uh, and um coaching, et cetera. So I'm not always coding all the time anymore, but I try to code in the morning, uh, at least kind of just set that, that tone, uh, of focus. And then I tend to, um, that's, that's my day, but then I, I think, um, it's an unlimited good. You can't, you can't plan too much. I try as much as I can to, uh, use, um, commit message first development. So just like a, uh, a named feature branch tends to, to focus your energies a little bit. So naming your commit uh, before you begin coding that next uh, incremental piece tends to focus uh, my energies uh, a little bit more uh, as well. So I, I, I try to plan at every level as much as I can. So part of your role as, as engineering practice manager at Grovo involves taking tips like those learned from Talmudic maxims and putting them into real world use. I know, for example, that Grovo once had something of a monolithic app that has once since broken up. And you've looked to uh, resolve the process and culture issues that had to lead to its creation. So what kinds of issues did you solve and how did the Maxims help with this? Uh, the feedback that I've gotten uh, from people that have uh, heard the talk and have put some of the practices uh, into play in their, in their professional lives, you know, looking back then months later, they're, they're more engaged. They feel more empowered. There, uh, it's a fair antidote. I'm finding uh, people tell me to imposter syndrome, and so people feel better about themselves, more capable, and people that feel better about themselves are more capable, take greater initiative, 
And uh, imposter syndrome is a thing, but it's not real. And so getting beyond that allows us to apply talents that we already had. And uh, so those people that take that initiative find themselves, I think, in the main being successful with it. So, yeah, it's not it's not a direct connection, but I, I think you can follow the path uh, between engaging in some of these um, professional growth habits and ultimately uh, taking a, a stronger, more successful role in the workplace. Sure. And um, the the move from from the monolithic application to a microservices architecture that was primarily a technical problem. So there there there's somewhat um, you know orthogonal concerns. The secret for us uh, in terms of the move to microservices has been a extremely uh, tight product and engineering alignment, small cross functional teams, and then laying the groundwork before the transition with creating a really world-class integration pipeline. Another area of focus for you has been in building greater alignment between product and engineering teams. How did you approach this? I think as a company, we recognize that this alignment between product and uh, engineering, it's necessary. And to be successful, it's both a a technical and a a cultural uh, problem uh, to solve. And you have to continually work at it. Uh, we understand that you have to kind of live together and work together. So the uh, the product and engineering teams are physically proximate. Uh, we recently outgrew uh, our uh, our facilities, and so the engineering team moved within the same building, but uh, to another floor. And that when we say the engineering team, no, that was engineering and product. They move as a unit. Uh, they're they are part and parcel of of one division within the company. Uh, meetings and communication uh, are, are not siloed to engineering or to product. There's usually a representative of the other discipline uh, within every meeting and uh, included in every communication. Uh, we celebrate together. Uh, product victories are engineering victories. Engineering victories are product victories. Uh, the infrastructure initiative product celebrated that uh, along with engineering, even though you know there was nothing they could put in their hands. They couldn't point to, to features that existed on the product, but they understood what that did for the organization. Uh, that's cultural. And then in terms of, uh, that's the living together, I guess. The technical, the, the working together. So we have product managers which are embedded in each of our engineering squads. The engineering department is uh, broken down into multiple cross-functional squads, which kind of aligns with that, that microservices approach to the architecture. And so we have embedded product managers and it works the other way as well, that engineers participate in design sprints and other typically uh, product only uh, rituals. Uh, Engineers are involved in those really from the earliest processes as well. Yeah, it sounds like a a lot of efforts been made to make that alignment, but no, Grovo takes a a very data-driven approach right across the company and you have your own data analytics platform to support that. Uh, But how does engineering use data to improve? For engineering, it's a focus more on metrics. My two uh, primary metrics, and they actually synthesize into one, are code coverage and cyclomatic complexity. And together, then they form a single metric, which for good or for bad is called CRAP. Um, it's uh, change at risk anti-patterns. But it is, uh, it is relatively aptly uh, acronymed uh, as well. Uh, essentially, it is the synthesis of code coverage and cyclomatic complexity. So something, you're, you're a lower number, meaning the less crappy, the better. Lower number is best. 
And so if you're targeting a CRAP score of, say, 30, so that would be a cyclomatic complexity of 10, code coverage of 42. If you wanted to target 20, which is better, that would be a cyclomatic complexity of 20. Code coverage now has to go up of, to 72. It's a much more complex um, implementation, so it is inherently riskier. So to offset that, then you need a higher code coverage as well. Uh, we also look at those independently because together they form a, a solid technical metric. What is the risk of this code, uh, putting this into, into production and maintaining this? Uh, what is the, the technical and the business risk? But individually, I find they're very good um, human-focused me- metrics. Uh, testing is not simply about proving correctness or regression. It influences design. We try to utilize uh, test-driven development. We're not exclusive uh, on, on that as a methodology yet, but we're working in that direction. So that's a good indication of how this code was produced, the higher, um, uh, the higher test coverage. It's also testing is highly documentary, and that is an often uh, overlooked benefit of testing, is testing as documentation and assisting in terms of onboarding new developers or even an engineer that's been there some time but's not real familiar with this part of the code base and is tasked to be working there, they often can get up to speed more easily or they have an understanding that they absolutely wouldn't have otherwise had by looking at the tests. So that's kind of a code coverage is kind of a human uh, focused metric as well to me, as is cyclomatic complexity. Uh, cyclomatic complexity is not only trying to put a number on the potential for incorrectness, but it's what type of cognitive load uh, does it take for an engineer to wrap their head around this and to to be effective in this uh, piece of the code base? How much understanding do they need here to be able to navigate this code? And we read code much more frequently than we write it. And so I think that it's fantastic metric itself as well. Uh, But those three Code coverage, cyclomatic complexity, and the two together in a CRAP score are the three that uh, that I look at uh, most frequently. The, the the CRAP score is definitely something I'll remember, so <laughs> that's an easy one. And one last question. Uh, can you recommend any books or resources for those wanting to learn more about encouraging engineering best practice across development teams? Uh, on an institutional level, I think uh, Code Complete uh, is fantastic. I think that's a, a great place to start in terms of things which are perhaps a bit more tactical, uh, implementation patterns by Kent Beck, uh, patterns of enterprise application architecture and refactoring by both by Martin Fowler. And um, I guess you can call it a classic in terms of uh, its approach and its content, though it's not terribly old. I'm a big fan of practical object-oriented design in Ruby uh, by Sandy Metz, even though I don't code in Ruby at all. I I use Ruby for configuration, but I'm not a Rubyist. Uh, by any stretch, uh, but I found that to, to be a fantastic resource uh, for uh, tactical implementation patterns. And then in terms of encouraging the practices throughout the team, uh, I found uh, two uh, that I can point to, Coaching Agile Teams, uh, which uh, is uh, Addison Wesley, and then Pragmatic Bookshelf has a title, Driving Technical Change, uh, which uh, I highly recommend. That's a fantastic list of recommendations. Thank you for providing that. Yes, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.